Hello. Welcome to episode 115 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. How are you lot? I recently got some feedback from a very knowledgeable and experienced podcast producer about the series relating to how it's hosted, edited and produced. And part of that process involved us agreeing that these intros sound far better when recorded outside. So here I am, in Victoria Park in Bristol, southwest England, trying to avoid the screams of the kids attending the primary school which sits at one corner of the park. The reality of trying to record a voiceover whilst birds chirp and sing in the background is that I'm now sat on the ground as I talk to myself in a bush. Today's episode is in two parts and coming up later is Roy McFarlane in conversation with me at this year's Verve Poetry Festival. First though is a conversation recorded April 27th of this year in central London with Jane Yeh. We met up in Covent Garden to discuss her second collection of poetry, The Ninjas, out through Carcanet Press, and her upcoming third collection which will be out in 2019, also with Carcanet. There's a little sausage dog just running past me there, you may have heard it. I've been looking forward to chatting to Jane on the podcast as many of my more recent interviews have been with writers who focus on themes rooted in the exploration of their own identity. And while this is a vital process for writers to work through, it is sometimes easy to feel like the only way you'll get recognition as a poet in the UK is if your writing practice is very much inward facing. Jane's style of writing runs contrary to that assumption as it explores fictional settings with voyeuristic, often lonely characters at the centre of her poems. I hope it's also clear from the conversation that it's often only through interviews such as this that writers dissect their own writing practice, as they're usually too busy writing to consider these questions unless prompted. As a listener, it can be common to think, uh, I'm not a proper writer like these people because I don't ask these questions of myself. The reality is that most people don't ask themselves these questions. Most poets I know, which is quite a few now, are simply overwhelmed by the fact that they haven't forgotten how to write a poem to sit around asking why they're doing what they're doing. I hope that makes sense. As always, I'll use this opportunity to ask that if you like what you hear in this episode or any of the other 114, then please do tell your friends, family and work colleagues about the podcast. Or maybe go and leave us a lovely review on iTunes. I have no marketing budget and word of mouth recommendations are invaluable. Here's Jane. Hi, I'm Jane Yeh and um, I'm the author of two collections of poetry, uh, Marabou and the Ninjas. And this first poem I'm going to read is A Short History of Mythology. To be a lady centaur, leaping across the hedgehog aisles, is to be in heaven and wearing a tropical lei. Like a shower of spiral curls, my tail is springy. It smells like violets and shit, in a good way. Thank you, pool. I can bounce down a peninsula laden with gorgonzola harvesting bites between watching my shows and inventing the handsaw. Between weaving a tapestry and visiting space, I will stomp on a few thousand years of Lady Centaur history without regrets. To leap through a waterfall in a novelty t-shirt, holding a gift basket between my teeth. To shake my legs around, pretending to be a freaky spider to investigate a mole all day, or whatever is stealing my tomatoes, is a paradise. Like a partridge, my head bobs when I run. My boobs bob when I run. When I run into the purple-tinged hills, I can be mythical. Like the very specific flower they use in salads in LA as a garnish, if you look at it upside down, you can see the face of a furious boy. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you for joining me. 
it's always a struggle to start these conversations, but I think I'm going to start with the point that... So I've been reading your second collection, The Ninjas, out through Carcanet Press, and a couple of things that I've downloaded off, um, online, one poem that was up on Poetry London, another on Boston Review fairly recently. It's made a real change reading the way that you write um, in character so much compared to a lot of stuff that find at the moment which is and understandably so for a lot of people a sort of exploration into themselves uh, yeah. their own identity and stuff. so it was these poems have stood out a lot compared to stuff that I've been reading in, in terms of stuff that I read for pleasure mm -hmm. stuff that um, I read professionally in this sense as well but maybe we could start about just chatting briefly about why you perhaps choose to write with in, in or write as character. yeah yeah I know I guess it's something that I've done almost from the beginning of um, when I started writing although you know, when I really started, like as a teenager, of course, like most people, I was writing about, you know, my own feelings, like having a crush on someone or wishing that I had a boyfriend or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I guess to me, like, because I know my own life and experiences, they're not that interesting for me to sort of rehash or, you know, even elaborate on directly. So I guess I've always been interested in writing about sort of like other characters or imaginary characters. I read a lot of fiction. I always have ever since I was little. So I guess in a way, you know, sometimes I think in a way I'm a little bit more like a fiction writer than a poet just because I like to sort of make up fictional worlds and characters. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also kind of weird, though, because obviously like a lot of the poetry I read, like you were saying, um, is people writing about themselves. And it's like really brilliant and super interesting. But somehow I don't feel like trying to do that about myself or my identity. Yeah, I think it's probably important to, to point out at the moment because I was, I was a bit worried about how I would word that question because it's, it's difficult to start talking about things like this without making one way seem better than the other. And it, that's, to, that's completely not what I'm yeah, trying yeah. to do. But it's just a, no, it's interesting to see how so strikingly someone like Luke Kennard sort of straddles both. He'll invent what was he saying recently, sort of invents, he has this internal critic which oh. appears as a fully formed character within his poem. So that's quite an interesting tool as well. But yours is a very consistent thing through, from what I've seen, at least through all of your poems, isn't it? Practically, yeah. yeah. I mean, I do have like a handful of poems that I guess are sort of more autobiographical or personal, if you want to say, but um, yeah, not, not a lot. It's also obviously, not, it would be completely untrue to sort of talk about your poems as being complete fiction as well because uh, things from your life must appear in there and it was quite interesting at least through the ninjas there's a definitely a difference between the two more recent poems that i've read online but in ninjas there seemed to be at least and it may just be the fact that i'm away in london away from my wife at the moment but there seemed to be a sort of underlying theme there's quite some lonely moments yeah. within those poems and these themes seem to run through which I'm assuming, would lead back to the author rather than the characters Right, themselves. right. Yeah, no, I mean, again, of course, like, um, there's always something of, like, the author and the characters and stories that they invent, even if they don't seem to be autobiographical. So, especially in the ninjas, although somewhat still in, in Marabou, I guess, but um, I would definitely say one of the main themes of it is, like, loneliness or kind of being almost like an outcast or being apart from the mainstream of kind of society or the world. Uh, yeah, I definitely got that feeling as well that of that nature of the outcast as well. A lot of these characters seem to be sort of voyeurs in themselves. You know, you mm. seem to be observing characters which are themselves observing mm. the world around them as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. A poem that stood out particularly in The Ninjas was um, Sergeants, the Daughters of Edward Dubois, where you um, sort of imagine what the, the youngers in the paintings mm. might be thinking or, or there are certain there are, it's in four parts and there are four yeah. scenes in which you elaborate a bit on the characters within there the sergeant's paintings come up a little bit more and there are further references to images how often do you take images as starting points that's also something that i guess i've done for a long time and actually at the moment i'm kind of doing it more or more deliberately i've always been interested in art history kind of like i mean what i was taught was pretty canonical Western art history. So, you know, like painting and old master paintings, but which I actually, I do really like, or I feel really drawn to. So when I started writing these poems, like again, in those first two collections, um, they're mostly like these old master type, you know, white male artists. But so in my new collection, the poems 
I've been writing have been, I've been trying to focus more on contemporary art and also not entirely paintings. Like some of it is installations or like videos or films. I'm very drawn to or inspired by visual images, I would say. So something that is, you know, obviously you can be inspired by anything that's a visual image, like an ad or a poster or whatever, but obviously something that is already kind of in a sense, like a work of art, um, you know, it has this extra power, I think, in a way that is attractive, so. That process of taking visual art as a starting point, does that happen physically in, in a gallery space or is that, would you reflect on it afterwards or go through catalogues? Mostly it is actually working from just reproductions, so like, yeah. you know, JPEGs on a computer pretty much. The Sargent painting, The Daughters of Edward D. Boyd, I had seen a long time ago in person in Boston where it hangs but you know, only once really. And that was actually many years before I wrote the poem at all. So a lot of times it's working from reproductions or even in a way like my memory of what something looked like. Again, with the same poem, I had you know a little postcard reproduction of it from the museum gift shop. But when I wrote the poem, I actually deliberately didn't look at it or like keep looking at it whilst I was writing the poem because I didn't want to be influenced by it too closely. So actually in the finished poem, if you look at it, some of the description doesn't actually fit the painting because I kind of misremembered. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no doorway that one of the girls is standing in. It's actually like just kind of space. It's interesting because I'm stuck for subjects to write about. If I'm struggling for inspiration, I will spend a lot of time in galleries looking at paintings. Okay, and it's one of my yeah. favorite things is write from painting. Leon Kossov is always, will always strike something in really sort of textural and almost sculptural in its sense and I think that's why I need to be in front of the paintings because I, I like to see the depth and the volume of paint yeah, built up yeah. on. He painted alongside Frank Auerbach and okay. they paint in a very similar way but, and they paint portraits and landscapes mainly of building sites in, in post-Second World War London, post-Blitz London but I had a discussion with a friend about who also paints from, oh, sorry, writes from paintings and they do a similar thing to you where they'll have postcards or JPEGs and their process was needing to remove the scale and the gallery from the image and it was this uniformity of having stuff on the screen that allowed them to draw stories out of the images i just oh, wonder okay. how much that plays in it's not really it's so much i mean it's more just the convenience of having like um a jpeg or yeah. a card that you can look at when you do actually want to see what it looks like properly but most of the time i don't know what it is really because like actually when i look at art in real life especially paintings that i love like you're saying what actually interests me is the brush strokes brush strokes and the texture and everything like that but when i'm writing a poem about it that doesn't really come into it i would say mostly no, but it's interesting to hear that you it's perhaps what you're writing from is more of a memory of the experience mm. of seeing it whereas there's a difference yeah. in, I no think it's I'm... definitely already like mediated by my memory and yeah, obviously I'm not trying to make some kind of exact like reproduction of it in words because what would be the point of that? I've only started trying to think about it or like theorize about it recently. So I don't really know what my conclusions are. Yeah. You know, it's like one of these things that in the same way that like I write these dramatic monologue poems or like poems about characters, like I've just been doing it for a while or, or like I just started doing it for who knows what reason so you know it's kind of like you start theorizing about it afterwards if you have to for well it's only when um, someone invites you onto a podcast yeah, and exactly. forces you to think about things yeah, this yeah. is actually it's probably quite an important point actually about these conversations is that quite often these subjects that come up when you're talking about things that aren't part of your process ne necessarily are they you just do things that you're drawn to and you feel yeah, comfortable yeah. with and something that you hopefully get enjoyment out of I don't particularly you know why I like looking at Leon Kossoff's paintings while I sit there and write about them and I don't think I would want to think about it too much because it would take some of the enjoyment out of it. I, yeah. I like being in the gallery. I was born near Tate Britain so it's quite nice to be okay. in that location and, and uh, knowing that my dad bunked off school when he was a kid and go, went, they all snuck in there to get away from the truant officer and stuff so I have a, a personal well, like connection with the like buildings. Well like when it was like just an abandoned industrial building or No, whatever, no, so right? Tate Britain, the, um, the older... Oh, Britain, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so these characters that come up within your writing, I really thought this question through enough, I'll try and think it as I speak. I was just wondering whether, when these characters come into your writing, are you writing as yourself as another character? Or are you viewing them? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, Is it yeah. You, yeah. Are you putting yourself into those personas? Mm -hmm. I guess, I don't know. I feel like, um, like there's a sense in which when people talk about writing dramatic monologues, like poems, 
that it's like, oh, you're in a, and I mean, I use this terminology too, like when I'm sort of critiquing students or something like that, like, you know, you kind of talk about like trying to inhabit the voice of this other character that you've created or like speaking in this character's voice. And in a way that's true, or like, that's kind of the most obvious way of putting it. But I feel like when you're actually writing or when I'm writing, that's not actually what I'm doing exactly or what I'm trying to do. It's almost like, um, cause I write really slowly and like, re I really do write kind of line by line or like sentence by sentence. And I almost feel it's like the voice is being create, like some kind of voice is being created by like one line and then what the next line is or you know, what's, what comes up in this like one line or statement that this kind of voice is saying, but it's not like, oh, here's the voice of, you know, this um, lonely robot or whatever, and now I'm going to speak in it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost more like in the process, it turns into the voice of a character or it turns into some kind of character, but it's not like I have a preconception of it that I'm aiming at. So, or, you know, it's not like, I don't know, maybe I imagine that like, people in acting classes must have some exercise where it's like, oh, here's the character you are now, like speak in their voice, that kind of thing. And it's so it's not like that. It's more the opposite in a weird way. And it's interesting to speak about that, because I think especially with a lot of people that are doing sort of spoken word stuff or um, anyone that's had any sort of done any sort of improvised stuff, it goes back to that thought of acting. And I suppose a lot of people or a few anyone that's done that would read your work and perhaps assume that you had a conceit to begin with or an ending point and you've found a way to work your character through that but it seems more that you start from quite a small starting point yeah and yeah and allow the whole thing to develop yeah no I would say that's definitely true I mean I definitely don't just start out with some whole conceit in mind or any kind of end point at all really or like plot or anything like that so it's very, um, like you say, I guess in a way improvised, like sort of moment to moment. I mean, obviously many moments because I, I am such a slow writer, but um, it's kind of quite haphazard actually as well, I would say, or like in a way it kind of leaves a lot to chance. Like if I think of some strange line that day that might be interesting, then the poem is going to turn into that or like the character some character is going to come out of that. So you're saying there that your process being quite slow, is it the, the writing process that is slow or does it also take the ideas quite a while to germinate as well? I guess like what I'm trying to say is, I mean, again, it's sort of weird because I haven't really thought about it myself, but um, until now, I guess it's like, you know, the ideas are only coming through like each sentence that I'm writing. So I guess you could say both of them are slow because they're coming together at the same time. What's the mechanical process of your writing? Do you have a few pieces on the go at once or do you sort of stick to one thing until it's worked through? Usually I only am kind of working on one thing at a time. I mean, occasionally there'll be something and then I'll put it aside and then be doing something else. Or like if I have a deadline, occasionally I'll be sort of doing one thing in the morning and one in the afternoon. But in a way I do just sort of like work at one really slowly and sort of worry away at it, which I don't actually think is the best process or like it's it's like literally the opposite again of what I recommend to students or whatever because I don't think it's that effective but it's like the way that I've fallen into working unfortunately so that's what I keep doing. I mean I'm kind of thinking when I finish this current book and sort of am embarking on a new book I want to try to like change my process and see if that does anything. And the process for putting this book together, is it similar? Are you just, um, did you have a pre-decided theme or an idea of what the collection should be about or did it just sort of suggest itself as pieces became finished? Yeah, like actually all th three of my, well, it will be my third book. So anyway, like these three books, each of them, I didn't have any kind of preconceived theme or project. It's just kind of like the poems that I've been writing for the last few or several years and you know obviously like they have their own commonalities and themes that emerge when you see them on mass but um yeah no it's definitely not any kind of project or concept but i don't know why i keep asking that question it seems to um at best bore people at worst annoy them oh. but, but I'll, I'll explain why it's just because it always seems like that's the that question only comes up when you're trying to sell a book afterwards suggest yeah. a unifying theme to a potential buyer or reader or something well I think I mean I think it's an interesting question because actually I feel like increasingly here and before that in the U.S. 
that most of the poets I know are actually often writing kind of they what they see is like you know a collection that has like a kind of project behind it or a unifying theme or some kind of I don't know what else to call it but you know that basic idea like they aren't just writing a bunch of like whatever poems come to their to mind like they have more of an arc or some kind of aim I guess you would say and I think it's cool like a lot of these collections with that feel are actually really strong and like interesting I guess for me it's again just where like somehow I can't come up with an idea like that that I feel strongly enough about or yeah. Actually speaking recently to Mary Jean Chan who's reflecting on her debut pamphlet and is very corn, corn, concerned with the you know, debut collection coming out through Faber and we were just chatting about how I suppose for a lot of poets the first collection is perhaps the most personal and um, the, the exploration of themselves and they can sort of get that out of the way and then go on to maybe Mm. considering well I'd like to explore the theme yeah, or, that yeah, point, or pick definitely. a particular project but it also might be a consequence of um, funding opportunities that become available to you once you've published the first collection you know someone might actually come to you and commission an idea or a project um, yeah well or I mean often I think it's like you know if you're applying for grants or other kinds of funding you have to say that you have some idea for a project so that's I mean again that probably is part of it with the American poets especially as well like how, how many of these contemporary American books have this kind of project. So for yourself as a writer, how much do commissions and projects for other organisations play in your practice? I mean, in terms of like financially or supporting yourself, the money, at least for the things that I've been asked to do, there's either no money or like, you know, minute amount of money. So it's not for that minute amounts. But um what I like about it, though, actually, I mean, I actually love it when people are like, oh, you know, I'm doing an anthology on this theme. Like, would you be interested in contributing something or writing something for it or just other kinds of commissions? I really like it because I like having some kind of, um, I don't know, external suggestion. Again, like the way that I don't write about myself or my feelings or experiences, really. Like, so I am always looking for something else to write about or even just as a starting point or jumping off point. Again, I mean... That's definitely part of the reason that I'm drawn to, one of the reasons I'm drawn to writing about art or art pieces, because again, it's like something that is totally external to me, but that I can grip onto as a starting point. Well, it's useful having those prompts, isn't it? Yeah, that are yeah external it's a to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's something I need to get back to more, is finding prompts for things uh, when I'm writing. Oh, okay. I find so I get too bogged down in thinking about myself too much, and it's, um, I don't find it very healthy. Plus, I'm not sure people particularly want to read it that much. Um, yeah, I sort of have uh, two sides to my writing. I have sort of a, a way of writing that's very confessional, but I also really enjoy writing sort of fiction-based stuff, which is sort of bordering on short stories. There's quite a lot of, um, I was going to say quite a lot, there's a, a huge amount in the way you write that really appeals to me, and I yeah. sort of would prefer to spend a bit more time exploring that. But I think it's, I don't know, I think... The reason I'm saying it is because I think there might be quite a few people listening that feel a pressure to write about themselves because that is the predominant fashion, I think, at the oh, moment. Okay. I'm just wondering whether, because I think it's good to talk about maybe ways of looking for prompt because I think sometimes, even if it's not with a view to being published, it might be healthy for a lot of writers to take a break from the thinking about yeah, themselves' yeah, yeah. internal eye and maybe look, sort of looking at past them. Have you got any... Do you, did you Are you conscious enough of when the switch was made to know what led you to start writing more fictionally or any advice for people that might want to try writing a bit more like One thing I've noticed a lot from teaching is that when you give people exercises that like force them not to be writing about themselves or to write in a kind of confessional way, um, they often produce really good stuff like that's really different from the way they were writing before and they often or kind of always will say oh I really enjoyed that like that was interesting and you know that doesn't mean they're going to like spend the rest of their life writing dramatic monologues or something but like you know trying something different I think is really worth it when you're working on your craft whatever. Do you have an example of an exercise that you might give like is it very yeah yeah no yeah. there's like I mean there are ones obviously like every teacher has ever has used them I'm sure where it's like you know, writing from visuals. So you tell the student, each student like picks their own image. So, you know, again, it can be 
um, a photograph or like an image of a painting or something. It can be like an ad or a poster if they want. It can be a, like totally anything. And then, you know, go away and write a poem that is inspired by it in some way. So it's like as simple as that, really. But, you know, again, I think it is probably natural for most people, especially when they're starting out to just write in the I first person voice and stuff. So even just being directed specifically to not write about, to not use that as your starting point, um, I think can be like fun or exciting for people. It's really interesting. I think before we move on to anything else, we might take a second poem if that's okay. So the poem I'm going to read is called A Short History of Style. And um, the subtitle is Joey Arias at Jackie 60, uh, New York, 1997. So Joey Arias is um, a performer and performance artist. And uh, in the 90s, especially in New York, when I was living there, he was famous for um, doing a one-man show where he was singing the songs of Billie Holiday. And he could vocally imitate her, like to a remarkable extent, but he himself, he wasn't like physically impersonating Billie Holiday, although he was in drag, but his own drag, not trying to look like Billie Holiday. So um, this is just a kind of a memorial to those performances. A short history of style. The disposition of her arms is a case of nothing ventured, nothing gained. Her violet ear makes sense if something wicked is being said. The angle of her nose is a challenge, a crime against nature. Her throat a fine line. Lover, where have you been? Mistakes come back to her like wrong notes, a clarinet of echoes. You can take the boy out of Dubuque. Nothing like bourbon to make her sing a slow tune. Downcast eyes hands swaying just so, the catch in her voice like a rusty key turned. A hundred nights blurred together like an ink blot smeared, her long fall of hair saying no, no, no. Thank you very much. It was interesting earlier to hear you talk about working from sentence to sentence. Another note that I made about some a few of the poems within the ninjas and also then audibly within that poem there seemed to be almost like a gathering together of these sentences and not that they're completely disparate because obviously there's a lot of work going into the order of them but this also there's something ringing in my mind also because there was a, a an event recently put on by toast poetry uh, which had remy graves mary jean chan and joe dunthorne reading there's a short q a afterwards and joe dunthorne was talking about he will go through old notebooks and stuff that doesn't work and put aside sentences that he likes or images and he's got a a folder on his desktop which will be saved lines. Yeah, I just yeah. wondered whether that's any part of your process, whether you will hold on to things or how you feel about discarding ideas or whether you will bring old images, or not, not old images, but images quite fit in other things. Yeah, yeah. Now that's really cool. Like I have um, one of my friends, this American poet, poet Amy Willard, I think for a long time she worked like that. I don't know if she still does, but like what you said that um, Joe Dunthorne was saying of keeping this whole notebook or file of um, like really good lines, but that you had to cut for one reason or another from a poem. I sort of used to keep a list of some good lines that I was hoping to reuse again in things, but actually I never really worked out. I like the idea of that and like the idea of kind of like collage and these fragments of poems. But again, for whatever reason, it's, it hasn't actually worked out for me. But I think when I'm writing, um, especially more recently, so like the poems that I'm reading today are all going to be in my next collection. So they're more recent. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in this idea of kind of like thinking of the poem as a collage of these lines or sentences or images and kind of trying to be sort of less linear and less logical in terms of um, the construction of the poem. It's fascinating to hear because I did have, uh, I was wondering whether I'd just projected that onto some of the poems that I've been reading the last couple of days of this idea that things could have been shuffled around. Yeah, um, yeah. It's definitely, you definitely get a sense of that, but it seems that it's very interesting to hear you talk of, of working in a very linear fashion and going from line to line, but then having this feeling 
uh, things could have been reassembled and reordered. Yeah, and actually, I mean, I guess now, or, you know, recently in in all of these new poems, like the editing that I do or the revising I do now is more about like changing the order of the sentences or lines in a way than the kind of more um, other kinds of editing that one can do. Do you know what I mean? So, Mm. yeah, sometimes I do like literally switch the order of like some sentences or some stanzas to see what happens if I do that. Going back to the visual arts as well, you're saying that it's not just paintings, but how much do abstract and collage images then play into the the way you think think about writing as well? Is it because from the ninjas, uh, it may have just been the the painters that I was familiar with, but it seemed much more figurative mm-hmm. in that uh, respect. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way, because it might be partly just because the kind of art that I'm writing about now, the more contemporary art tends to be less figurative, or maybe I'm subconsciously seeking out less figurative work. I'm not really sure, to be honest. But um, I sort of feel like I need less figuration to still be able to create like a kind of story or characters out of than I used to in those earlier poems. So for instance, like one of my new poems is kind of inspired by this installation that in like a small gallery, basically a one room gallery. So there were different pieces, you know, sort of arranged around the room and none of them are figurative per se. Well, except I guess there's like a cast of a foot, but the rest, you know, there's like um, a wheelchair that was cast in bronze, I think, or painted gold or something like that, you know, like different objects. But like the poem itself is kind of about a man or a boy. So, you know, I guess maybe it was interesting to me to create something that was about a person, even though the visual, the visuals I was working from don't directly represent people. Mm-hmm. And this uh, cut up or collage aspect of your process of working, how much do you want to communicate that to the reader or do, does that play any role? Yeah, I don't know. Actually, again, only like super recently, I've been trying to think a little bit more about the kind of form of the poem on the page or what it looks like on the page. And um, on the one hand, I kind of like the fact that um, most of the poems that I've been writing, you know, even though they are kind of like this strange collage, but they are almost like rigid looking on the page and, you know, they're set out in stanzas and the first letter of each line is capitalized, which is considered old fashioned nowadays. But I kind of like the sense of order that that gives you. But actually, I'm also getting, I'm just starting to be interested in, you know, these much more open forms, especially because a lot of, again, like contemporary poets that are doing really exciting work use them so much that I guess it's the idea of it is, um, is coming into my mind more. So I'm only just starting to experiment with them, you know, like sort of where the phrases and th- and words are kind of spread out a little more on the page. You know, not like concrete poetry where it's making like a little shape, but just more open. Giving it air and space. Yeah, yeah. Forcing people to pause or maybe. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, because it, it, I suppose that's what I was leading on to is uh, if you have that process, it, it's fine if that's just your process to get to a traditional looking poem. But if, if you want to communicate that to the reader, it's very hard in a traditional book to express that, isn't it? Because everything's very defined. It's yeah, printed yeah. there and it, there's no movement in it necessarily. So it's interesting to hear about. Have you considered taking your poetry off of the printed page in order to express more of this feeling of collage? Um, what do you mean? Um, more taking it closer to what uh, some of these installations are that you've um, taken your inspiration from, allowing some sort of live movement within the text i guess i haven't really to be yeah, honest no, no, it just popped into my head because i, I think i'm p- thinking of one particular artist but um... oh, okay i mean it's an interesting idea i guess if i were probably more sort of if i thought more about performance or maybe we're just like a better performer i might be trying to do something more radical like that but to me really i mean i guess the outcome i want is like something that is satisfying to me or to other people when you read it on the page so mm-hmm. Again, I guess it's kind of old fashioned, but to me, like the way that it's performed is always going to be secondary, really. I suppose what I also meant, though, was not just in the performance sense, but in the way that people are allowed to read the work, whether there is some way of controlling more how people interact with the words, even without your presence. Okay. 
Actually, I remember just recently um, I was in a seminar. It was about um, Ulipo, that movement that started, I guess, kind of in the 60s or 70s, maybe. And, uh, oh dear, I hope I have his name right. I want to say it was um, an academic named Dennis Duncan who had studied a lot about Ulipo and then was sort of like giving us a basic summary of Ulipo. But he brought in a book, and I can't remember. It might have been by Raymond Cuneau, but it might have been one of the other figures. But it was actually really amazing where... The book was, I think, supposed to be a hundred sonnets. It was all in French, but each page of the book, the pages were slit, so each line was basically like a flap. It was like you could be assembling your own uh, sonnet out of 14 lines, but from all different poems in the book mm. by like moving the flaps around kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it was super cool. And I thought, you know, how cool that would be a thing to do as a project or whatever. So yeah, but maybe for someone else, not for me, right? Really. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, the idea of that, like the way it's kind of modular and also has like, um, you know, this degree of chance. Oh, I know, because um, the thing that it reminded me instantly of was uh, the poet Crispin Best. He has this thing online, I guess it's on his own website, I assume, but where he wrote like literally a thousand lines, they're quite short, like, you know, one sentence lines of poetry. And then there's like a randomizer and you can make it, um, you know, put them in a certain order to write, like, I don't know, I think it was maybe like a 12-line poem each time. And it was really excellent, actually. Yeah, there's a, a very interesting digital poetry project at the moment called Torn. I think it's T-O-R-R-N, based in Bath. And it's a, a student there on the MA course. And she's designed this poetry bot, which has taken, I wanted to say the work of Keats, it may not be Keats, it is a very well-known poet, and just basically it's like data entry. You enter the, the works of this poet, and then it regenerates poetry. Okay, that's cool. And yeah. it doesn't, the, the computer doesn't know what makes good poetry. There are just certain rules, and I, I just wonder, may just be what I'm looking at, but whenever anyone talks about collage now in terms of um, poetry, it always that these things come to my mind, yeah, about yeah. how it may not, be the author themselves that comes up with it you know it may just be a, pro a more of a collaborative process to go through in working with someone else in order to show that sort of cut up nature of the work yeah because otherwise yeah, it's just really hugely laborious isn't it doing it yourself <laughs> yeah no i mean the thing that was really interesting to me about this randomizer that crispin made was uh well i mean obviously because he's a good poet so like all of the lines were just interesting and strange in and of themselves separately but it really was amazing, like how when you saw, you know, they were in uh, quatrains, so four line stanzas, like just it was preset to do that, I guess. So, you know, you would see these four sentences in this order and then you'd be like, oh, you know, like they were each one would be about a totally disparate thing, like some thought about pizza or like a dog or whatever, you know. But then as soon as you put them together in this particular order, it's like, oh, it just generates like this whole other idea or image um so i do really like the thought of that yeah i mean definitely my question was more aimed at trying to work out what you want the relationship to be with the reader rather than questioning why you haven't done any of these things so, yeah. but it's interesting to see what the different aims are of different writers okay, and how they yeah, want yeah. to yeah how they want that relationship yeah. to work with their reader and with these changes that you're sort of considering making with your upcoming third collection. How has that process been with your publishers to explain to them that they've been fine with any changes that have been made? Or do, how, I, I don't think I've spoken to any poets particularly about the process that goes between each collection and whether how easy it is to change direction or suggest new ideas. I guess I'm lucky because I think they're pretty laissez-faire. Like, you know, uh, they've never seen a manuscript and said, oh, we don't like this or like this isn't somehow commercial enough or I don't know what enough. Um, like they pretty much are happy with what I've been doing. So like I say, in that sense, I feel really lucky. And I mean, I think I sort of assume they must understand implicitly that, of course, like anyone that is writing is going to develop or change their practice, you know, from book to book. So that's just natural or like par for the course. So. Yeah, I mean, they haven't actually seen the final manuscript of this book yet, so we'll see. But I've been assuming, and they act as if it'll all be fine, so. 
So at Carcanet, I I know the names of people there, but I don't know whether they're a, a team at all or whether it's individuals. But have you, throughout the process of the three books, has it been a single person you've worked with or does, does that change over time? Again, of course, it must be different at every publisher, but for Carcanet, because they're quite small, I think, at least since I've been with them, it seems like there's basically two people that edit things. So there's either Michael Schmidt, who's also the director, and then there's always sort of a second editor who works there. And so it's always been the kind of second person that was my own editor. But like that person has changed over time. So in my first book, it was, I think, yeah, Judith Wilson. And then in my second book, it was Helen Tookie. And now the current editor is Luke Allen. And when you talk, because obviously this is different from writer to writer and publishing house to publishing house, what do you mean when you say you work with an editor? What role do they have in the final manuscript? Are we talking about changes to poems? Are we talking about sort of um, scratching out of lines or are we just talking about making fitting them onto pages in the order of the book? Yeah, again, like even with the particular people that I've mentioned, I know other people, other writers that have worked with them and had different experiences. So that's just, this is just my experience personally. But um, so I guess like with none of the editors I've had, has there been that much um, back and forth really? Like they've kind of let me do as I please and they haven't really requested many changes or edits to things. So like very light touch, I would say. And so what is your personal editing process? Do you have people that you share work with or do you rely on sort of small readings at poetry events, how do you develop the sound and the flow of your work? I guess I don't really have people to share work with anymore. Like, you know, since I left, like the last postgraduate po um, program that I was in, you know, obviously how like when you're doing a degree or a course of any kind, like you're, you have this um, inbuilt set of people that you can show work to. But then like once you leave that, you're often on your own or else you have to develop your own kind of network. And I have a lot of friends that are poets, but we don't actually share our work with each other, like, um, for whatever reason. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of am just reliant on myself. It would be nice to have people to share work with. You know, it's kind of hard at the same time because everyone's just so busy. Like, I know if other people were like, even people whose work I really like or who I like personally, if they were asking me to read their work all the time, it would be kind of hard, like, you know, just finding the time and like the headspace and all that kind of stuff. So when I was writing The Ninjas, which already now is a long time ago, but I don't know how I fell into this, but actually for quite a while there, like I would write a new poem or finish a poem and then send it to um, an old friend of mine who's named Ed Park. He's a novelist who lives in New York, where I used to live. And it, But it wasn't like to get his feedback or edits or anything at all. It was more like, oh, here's my poem. And then he would basically just send back an email being like, great, or, you know, this one is really good or something. Like it was just kind of like this general encouragement, I guess, or something. I don't know. But then after a while, I stopped doing that as well. So um... so my wife and I have moved to Bristol last autumn and I recently or in January started a writing group. So we can offer so part of the group. We all share poems and we offer feedback. But that's useful in and of itself but I tend to use the sessions as a way of reading people's work and then giving feedback because it means that I'm thinking about poems so when I come mm -hmm. to interviews I'm, cool, I'm always yeah. thinking about writing so I don't actually share a lot of work at the sessions but similarly to you I also have a, a, a couple of friends who I'll just send the work to they usually send like a red heart back emoji okay, or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. And I don't get, get any feedback but what it means is that I don't feel like I'm just doing the writing for myself vacuum, yeah it's not yeah. in a vacuum i'm actually sharing it with people yeah, yeah. regardless of feedback so i suppose that's important as well isn't it because of i suppose the process of writing any book is quite drawn out and quite long you need it would be easy to lose all contact with any reader in that development stage so i suppose that's it's important to just have that connection that immediate connection with someone yeah maybe yeah um so we're sort of running out of time but just to mention uh, give a proper plug to the upcoming collection. Does it have a title yet? Um, right now it's like a working title, I guess, although I kind of think it will end up being the actual title just because for a few years now, while I've been write working on the manuscript, I still haven't been able to come up with 
a title that I really, really like. So kind of by default, it's been just taking the title of one of the poems. So the title might be Discipline. But again, you know, I'm kind of hoping to come up with something else just because I hate that pressure of having like the title poem in a collection. But yeah, that's what it looks like it is for now. Yeah. And that will be available when? Uh, March 2019. Yeah, through Carcanet Press. I'll put a link to Carcanet's website and your website, Jane, in the episode description rather than reading them out on no one ever understands uh, websites when I read them out on audio oh, for yeah, some reason. So there will be yeah, clickable yeah. links within the episode oh, cool. description That's so nice. people can just find stuff via that. That's probably a lot easier. And to finish off, we'll take a third and final poem, if that's okay. This poem is just called A Short History of Destruction. Oh, actually, sorry. I didn't think this one would have much of an intro, but um, just because when you hear a poem out loud, obviously it's easy to miss odd words that people say. So in the first stanza, I use the word étagères, which is, um, you know, it's just a French name for this kind of piece of furniture with sort of open shelves that is traditionally used to display ornaments. And uh, kind of in the middle of the poem, I use the word ewer, E-W-E-R, which means a water jug. A short history of destruction. In the palace of the cats, we minused and gnawed. We burrowed and simulated, skirting the wormholes. In the shining halls, cubist paintings looked down on us like startled Martians. Lavish flower arrangements loomed from the persistent étagères. Our peril was molten and diabolical with a side of told you so. Our children vanished and reappeared under different names. All day, cats covered in gold sat in their perpendicular chairs, planning invasions. In their padded drawing rooms, they ate statement salads and filed their nails. Item, beshrew areas of carpet or supernumerary globes. Item, the case of M, who is flattened by a ewer. Each day, the smell of cat wafted malevolently through the cracks in the platinum ceiling. We cowered and filleted in our synthetic beds. The glamour of the cats was undeniable, like their long and curling hair. They rinsed their paws in lemon-scented finger bowls between fish courses. A potpourri of tiny bells rang out silkily whenever one of them passed by. We did covet and die many times in the palace of the cats. Beneath the jagged candelabras, with our backward fur and shifty eyes, we were killed like children. The antlers on the wall were implacable as Valkyries. Some of the cats played drastic minuets on their diminutive grand pianos. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you for joining me and good luck with the development of your third collection. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It was really fun. It's been a pleasure. That was the wonderful Jane Yeh. Next up is Roy McFarlane. We got together to chat in front of an audience at the second Verve Poetry Festival, which was held in Birmingham in February of this year. This is the third of four live interviews that I recorded at what I think is the broadest and most inclusive poetry event in the UK. Roy has a real ability to reflect the voices and noises of Birmingham, his city of birth, and I enjoy chatting to him about characters in his poems being composite of many different people. I think about this question a lot with my own writing. One of the foremost questions I put to myself is, do I have the right to somebody else's story? I don't think I'm anywhere near answering that. While I ponder, here's Roy and Verve Poetry Festival. Hello, Verve, how are you doing? Make some noise, come on. Louder, 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 louder. Come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. Uh, this is day four, is it not, of Verve? It is. It just seems to be wonderfully endless. Today, I'm joined by a local legend, 
Roy McFarlane. Hello, Roy. How are you doing? Hello. I'm going to read Roy's bio because uh, I think most of you know who he is, but there's going to be listeners I have to be held accountable to. Roy McFarlane was born in Birmingham and now living in the black country. He has held the role of Birmingham Poet Laureate and Starbucks Poet in Residence. His first collection, Beginning With Your Last Breath, was published by the wonderful Nine Arches in September 2016. He is the first commission writer for this wonderful anthology I'm holding my hand. It all radiates outwards, which was the product of the Verve Poetry Competition, which asked for poems about cities. We're going to begin our chat with an extract from Roy's poem. Okay, thank you very much. In the city of a hundred tongues, one. The night comes early in the city, maybe lost, maybe on the run, but it's here to stay, it kneels and prays, nervous in the illumination of street lamps. Arms outstretched, a barefoot raster stands outside Waterstones, and in a city of a hundred tongues, in the tumult of identities, even in the din of it all, you can find amity in this beautiful city. Two. This barefoot Rasta walked into Central Station. This Rasta is swapping the sands of Morant Bay for the brown leaves crinkling under feet. This Rasta is not the famous Muta Baruka. This Rasta is sitting in a cafe breaking wisdom with a writer. This Rasta has been traveling a long, long way. This Rasta, is he fiction or is he truth? Five. Remember, this Rasta is not Muta Baruka. This Rasta straddles histories of the colonized and the colonialist. This Rasta will not be policing state borders, but will stand in the gap in the midnight hour. This raster will at times embalm your empathy. This raster at times will fuck up your mind. This raster will not be found on the BBC. This raster will be getting into your heads. This raster will not be wearing dreads, but you won't have to chase him out of town. This raster will not be standing on street corners, but will be performing from the BT Tower. Six with waterstones behind him, arms outstretched and barefoot. A raster sinks into a multitude of tongues, bouncing off the soft palettes of black skies. And if all a man or a woman brings with them is their mother tongue, in a city of a hundred tongues, we should always make room for another one. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. I really love that poem. I, I sat, when I attended the reading for this anthology, I worried that too many people's views and musings on cities were going to be too personal and too inward-looking. But you really captured the noise of a city in your poem by just focusing on a couple of people. I thought it was an amazing thing to do. How important is the soundscape around you in your poetry? I mean, specifically in this particular poem, I think the poem came to life in very the essence of Birmingham City. I'm always amazed when I walk through the city and I, when I see Christians and Muslims having their little stands talking about the hereafter or, 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 or religion, or whether there are all that language. And I think that was the thing I wanted to bring out in, this, in, in that poem, is that the, the, the powerful thing about language in this city kind of thing I read an article about it. there's something like 120 or 123 languages abounding in this city, and I just wanted to capture that, that, that kind of din of identities bouncing off each other, but it's still a beautiful thing. And, 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 and there is no, I don't believe there's a city that's monolithic, one language, one identity. That's the essence of cities. People come, whether it's from the rural or from other countries or whatever, that's what cities is about. So much diversity comes into a city to make a city beautiful. 
and grow and evolve and that's what city is all about yeah i think birmingham is one of the few places in the country that i've visited that's made me or reminded me of what Brixton used to be. <laughs> that outside the Waterstones, that's what Brixton tube station used to be like. Yeah. That noise. Yeah. I interviewed the poet Tim Wells on uh, up at Stoke Newton in North London. And on the recording, I apologised to the listeners that there might be a bit of noise <laughs> in the background. And he corrected me and said, it's just sounds. Yeah. And it's an important point. It might be something that people that have grown up in cities take for granted that a lot of people would consider that noise mm. and not a soundtrack. Mm. Is that an important thing to try and communicate in your writing as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking um, a lot of the poems that I've read, whether from um, the, the, the romantics to the present day, and they will capture uh, rural or all that, that birds. I mean, I couldn't name half of the birds that they talk about and, and all that rural setting. Plenty of pigeon pine, right? <laughs> <laughs> but they've captured something with all that extra noise that's yeah. going around yeah. them kind of thing that gives their poem an atmosphere. And I think, what about us? The, the, equally, the sound effects, the what's going on around me in a city. In an, uh, and I write about the, the, the number one thing told to a poet when you're going on a journey and writing poetry, write what you know. So no matter how much I'll read all these incredible poets of the past, half of the things I don't know, I'll understand the craft, the content maybe, but I don't know that. But this is what I know, and I will do everything that I can to translate that into, a, into, a, into that form, into that poem. Um, so yes, it's so important to capture the atmosphere, the, the environment around me, in, in my poem and I want to catch diverse voices I'm very much a, a voice person in I have characters in my in well, I was my just going to follow that up when you say write about what you know it's a very common piece of advice but I was going to follow it up with like how do you write about who you know I write about people around me. A lot of the characters that come up in, in my collections are usually um, a combination of individuals that I know kind of thing. So I either pick the best of them or the worst of them um, and, and then make a character and that character starts to walk through my collection. The, um, beginning with Your Last Breath, there's a guy called Bevan and you'll see him crop up in about three or four of my poems kind of thing. And Bevan is, is literally a, a, a collection of four or five of my friends. And, and, and it's what we lived through the 80s, um, being black in the Midlands kind of thing, and, and, and the struggles, but the joys. We, we loved our basketball. I wanted to talk about that, and I sh showed it in my collection. But we also had police officers fo following us around kind of thing. I needed to show that. The music that we, we grew up on, um, Motown, Soul, R&B, Marvin Gaye, I needed to show that. And you'll find Marvin Gaye going through all my collections kind of thing. You should be going through every collection. <laughs> <laughs> Any characters that, you, that exist in poems that you love or that you write yourself, do you think they have to be composites of different people in order to, make, to, to sort of aim for a form of universality? That's an interesting question. Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. <laughs> I think I've, Quick fire. I've, <laughs> I've always gone for um, several people to make that indiv individual. I don't think I've ever, you know, um, there's the Patterson house I can think of, where that's about a guy that we used to go to, and that, well, actually, that's a composition of, it's not, I just realised that's not Patterson. That's a composition of two or three guys. Yeah. So there's something about me doing the composition that, that comes through these characters. And I'm not sure if it's about getting the best out of them or getting a diverse feel. And I guess that's part of us as being poets or storytellers. You pick as many truths as you can, but you make up other parts as well to make that character exciting. Do you think there's also an element to it, though? If you're really concerned about the people that you're writing about, you perhaps don't want to write about them as an individual because you don't want to give too much away about their about them personally and maybe possibly it's easier to compose a character out of different elements <laughs> because you're a bit more protective around people that's interesting i uh, i keep saying interesting i do apologize uh, i am very interesting <laughs> no, it made me think of um i've been blessed how do you say this Roy? i've been blessed with one or two relationships with 
some beautiful women during my, my, my journey. And one of those ladies, when I was starting my poetry, saying she's worried about getting into the, the book. You'll always write about people around you. And is it safe to be a lover of yours because we'll end up in your book? Um, and the last, actually, the last poem that I'll read is about somebody who's real. Uh, <laughs> but um, what was the question again? Is there an element of protecting the person you're writing so, about by adding other elements? You know, sometimes I may protect people and sometimes I just write it. Again, I think it's important to write the emotional truth. It's something that somebody taught me, that if you faff about with it and, and you don't really write the truth, then people will know that. They, they'll know that you're making it up. So if a character has to be the wife, the partner, somebody I hated or was angry with, then it's going to go in there as well, as well as the composite individuals. So it's quite interesting who I protect and who I don't is the best way I could answer that. What are the differences or similarities between writing a love poem to a city and a love poem to a person? I mean, they're, they're equal metaphors, isn't it? Um, you, and you'll see that in, in my next collection about certain journeys of love kind of thing, I, I'll use landscapes, I'll use cities. In the last collection, there was something about Birmingham City and, and the way I fell in love with a woman, but equally looked at all the different things that were happening in the city, from the busker who's playing his saxophone to walking around the art gallery, um, the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. All of that was included in this love poem that was talking about love with this woman, but also about the love of the city. So I think they're equally the same. We're not expecting that. I try, got... to, I try to go into everything with a mind boy. <laughs> I don't expect anything in this life anymore. I'm jaded. Jaded by poetry. No, I think I'll spoil the mood if I go on with another question. Let's wrap up with a love poem. The following love poem is something that I perform on the circuits all the while. And um, somebody told me that they actually read this yesterday morning kind of thing. So I, I thought, let me read it again from my perspective. Okay, here we go. It's often known as the tights poem as well. As I did the night before. It was the way you used to put your tights on. After a moment of loving or at the dawn of a new morning. There was nothing more sensual or visual than you sitting at the edge of the bed, taking your tights in your hands, softly, tenderly, lost in that moment of intimacy. And you begin. With one leg folded into your body, your foot pointed elegantly, unrolling a film of nylon that would sheathe and cling over tips of toes, ball and sole, arch and ankle over stubborn heel, sailing steadily up the calf of an extended leg. A ritual so beautiful, it had to be repeated. And when completed, with both feet on the ground, you would rise, gracefully poised as a ballerina at the bar. Bending at the waist with legs straight, you would unroll the rest of your garment with sweet dexterity, across knees and up golden thighs, until they finally ascended over a round, delicate derriere, where waistbands settle and the gusset reaches the meeting of your thighs. And you stood tiptoe, both stretched body stretched and arched for a moment, you held that pose. And finally, with an encore, you bend over one more time, caressing and smoothing out folds or ripples that you find, as I did the night before. When we had reached our pinnacle, I held you tenderly and lovingly, eased out the swelling tide that still lingered in the bodies of two lovers overwhelmed in love. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ver. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roy. Cheers. Hello. You stuck around to the very end. You're part of a very select group of people. Treat yourself to a biscuit.
This episode and the accompanying transcript have been made possible through the funding I've received from Arts Council England. You can download that transcript over at our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com, where you can also follow the blog I update sporadically. If you want to follow us for updates on social media, then you can find us at silent underscore tongue on Twitter and Lunar Poetry Podcast on Instagram. There is a Facebook group, but I'm probably going to pack that in soon as it's pretty much a waste of time, what with the evil algorithms and all of that. That's it for today. Come back and join us for episode 116. 116. It's crazy. In which I'll be talking to the incomparable Russ Sutherland about his poetry and his fantastic podcast series Imaginary Advice. It will also be the fourth and final interview from Verve with C.I. Marshall. But for today, that's it. Juicy. Juicy.